0: Ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, welcome to the Crossing Streams podcast. Here we go. Oi, oi, streamers! Welcome to Crossing Streams Episode 8, here with Maddie G. I am the Bizzle. Matt, we got an awesome premiere and some other shows to talk about this week. What is up? Hi, everybody. Welcome to
1: Episode 8 of Crossing Streams, which I am subtitling, aka Sandworms of Crossing Streams. <laughs> I figured uh, Jesse would like that one. That is after Sandworms of Dune, the oh, eighth no. Dune book. No. Technically the second by Brian Herbert, but you know, that was, I was scrambling, you know, once you get past five or six, most series are over. So now it's really a challenge to come up with stuff. We may just start naming them after atomic elements at some point.
0: Okay. A few things on that. That's brilliant. By the way, if you think quick things on that, and then we'll move on one, there has never been a like pseudo, um, sequel series, that I know isn't inferior, that I've wanted to read more, but have resisted than the Brian Herbert Dune books. I mean, every time I'm in the bookstore and in the sci-fi section, I almost want to just buy all of them and read them, but I know they're not that good. And, you know, I mean, the later Herbert books, Frank Herbert books, especially um, books five and six of the Dune series, are considered inferior or just really complicated and they are really convoluted. But at least it's Frank Herbert. I don't think Brian right. Herbert's a great writer, although he is a great um, retainer of his father's property. Um, yeah. And he did base his two books, Hunters and Sandworms, yes. on
1: notes that Herbert left. Now, yep. I've only read – I'm going to read
0: them at some – I'm definitely going to read them at some point, yeah.
1: Which is the book where Leto II merges with the sandworm and so becomes – not. he, he doesn't yeah. become the god. He, children. The, okay, it is children. I, he's I he's having
0: visions with Ga, uh, Gamina, his sister. Right. Uh, the whole uh, – And he takes the uh, throne at the Jane. end because the worms yeah.
1: give him superpowers
0: – yeah. Is he that can, the he, third he, book yeah.
1: or the second?
0: That's the very end of Children of Dune, and then it leads directly into my personal favorite. I know. God Emperor. Yeah, God Emperor. I know most people would disagree with me, but there's something so deliciously and darkly funny about like him killing a thousand Duncan Idahos and so forth as you know, and uh he's the despot who knows he's the despot, you know. It's like um You know, we talk about with comic book movies, it's fun when the mustache-twirling villains are self-aware and know that... Like Damien Dark, for example, in recent memory. Sure. So, you know, it's kind of fun that he knows he's such a bad guy. Although he actually has a a moral as well as practical reason for doing it. But anyways, just to wrap that up, (laughs) I'm starting to feel a little bit better about the Dune situation just because... The director, whose name I can't pronounce, that you can pronounce, who did Arrival, Sicario, is doing Blade Runner. Oh, Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve, I I feel pretty comfortable with. Um, I'm not sure what Legendary is going to do. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, Legendary basically made the Warcraft movie for China. Yep. And they made bank with that movie because of China, even though it made nothing in the states although it did beat the great wall in the states and that movie made a ton of china so um who fucking knows so uh nice nice dune connection there um and uh, maybe we'll do a dune podcast at some point although you haven't read all the books right you just read the first two and then you first seen three the first i've read three. dune
1: messiah and children yeah. and then i quit i, I uh, just don't
0: know why they can't do more shows uh on tv sci-fi shows sci-fi isn't science fiction shows maybe on the sci-fi channel or not like the n- f- original dune miniseries in 2000 which you know basically you could tell they went into it knowing uh, where they knew and accepted that they were going to have a low budget and so they focused on casting and they focused on writing and they focused on amazing costumes and set designs right. and stuff like that and you didn't even care that the sand crawlers looked stupid because you know the rest of it was was so in the spirit of dune Um, I'm I'm wondering if that's maybe the best, the best format and something interesting to go forward, man, we we can do a podcast on this, or this will just be a thread that we talk about, uh, you know, is the art, the delicate, if not impossible art of adaptation. Sure. Um, and this is going to be really coming into picture with the Handmaid's Tale on Hulu this spring, Mm -hmm. because that book is a really, really important book. It was when it was published, um, it, during either like the Reagan or right after the re- post-Reagan era in terms of women being enslaved in the future by Christian fundamentalists, it's certainly a big deal now where you see all these propaganda ads that the Trump people putting out with women talking about how the equal wages thing is bullshit and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and feminism is dangerous, right? right? As we talked about with Supergirl. And so I'm not saying women are going to be enslaved in this country, but it, it, Handmaid's Tale is feeling a lot more relevant right now than they probably even realized when they started making it, because they started making it a long time ago, or at least greenlit the project, like but maybe before Trump entered the race to any of this nonsense. So, um, yeah. So as a tease, and then we're going to move on to The Americans, which premiered this weekend, which is one of Matt's favorite shows. Uh, if we have time later, uh, but definitely this episode or uh, near episode, uh, uh, an upcoming episode. I want to talk a little bit about web television whether it's on youtube or vimeo or just the whole notion of you know people's entire people's career being online and being able to support themselves and getting millions of viewers um so that comes up later matt we'll, organically we'll, we'll talk about it but just follow that away uh, uh crossing streams uh listeners um we will be discussing alternative media uh, on and off throughout crossing streams so matt anything you want to say to the uh bizzlecast audience before we dive into the americans I think let's uh, just get to all it. All right. So um, give us a two to three. I know what it's about. But give us a two to three sentence description of what it's generally about and then jump right in. People, this is a spoilers podcast. Um, if you um, are a fan of the Americans, then keep listening. If if you're not sure, then you should listen and then you go back. Because let's be honest, we've all been spoiled on stuff. And if a show's good enough, it's always worth watching. Um, and if nothing else, you get to hear Matty G talk about one of his favorite shows, which I personally am excited about. So go ahead, buddy. All right, so The Americans is a TV
1: show on FX. It is now in its fifth season. It stars Kerry Russell and Matthew Rhys as a pair of Russian KGB officers who very early on in their career join a program that basically teaches them to be American. It teaches them to speak English perfectly, to behave like Americans, to have American tastes and interests, and then sets them up as a married couple and sends them to America for a long-term covert spy operation. They have handlers also who sound and look and act completely American, um, one of which is Frank Langella who is, or Langella, who is a, a very old, very well-known actor. Um, and then they, they go on spy missions. They bug the fbi they try to smuggle out biological weapons their neighbor's not, an
0: fbi a- agent right Am I their neighbor
1: it? no uh yeah noah emmerich who yeah. is also a, a pretty well-known actor um cool people might know him as uh he's the assistant coach in the miracle movie about the uh,
0: 1980 hockey ah, team which i still want to see i've heard it's pretty good uh,
1: that's, that's my favorite sports movie I, uh, really
0: more than rocky oh, yeah. Rocky is great. Um, It's not really a sports movie, though. It's a drama. Yeah, no romantic drama movie.
1: It's about yeah. It's an extension of the the boxing metaphor. The um, the idea that boxing is sort of this quintessentially American sport, even though it's just modern gladiator gladiator stuff. But yeah, Miracle. I actually enjoy watching more. For one, Rocky is very sad. Uh, it's very sad in a very fundamental
0: way. Because you mean the series? The, the, uh, the no, even the, the movie. Even yeah. though he gets
1: validation at the end because he's able to hang with this superstar, there is this overhanging aura of boxing basically ruined my life, that I gave all of my potential away for this thing, and I ultimately really didn't get anything out of it. And that's mm-hmm. very realistic but it's very
0: sad. Okay, can um, we just? I, I'm sorry, I don't want to sidebar too much. We're just getting started, but we need to c develop after all this time together a shared lingo d- 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 where we delineate between movies that we love watching and then movies that are really good, you know, like movies, right? So, like Rocky is hard to watch a lot. Maybe Miracles more more easy to watch. That was their difference for you on those two things, right? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, a it's hard to argue that Rocky's got to be objectively better insofar as there's objectivity on, on a movie. I mean, it did win an Oscar.
1: Sure. Yes, I would say, yeah, it, it's a deeper movie. It's a more nuanced, more complex movie. Uh, it's a more adult movie, whereas Miracle is a family friendly Disney film. I would right. still argue it's an exceptionally made family friendly Disney sports film right. that's better than a lot of the other films in that subgenre yeah. i like it much more than friday night lights i like it much more than remember the titans sure um it wasn't a fair it,
0: comparison yeah
1: no and it's yeah. also it's fiction versus a fairly accurate representation uh recreation of what actually happened you yeah. know
0: this uh, yeah. okay well so, let's let's go get, let's get back to the Americans. i'm sorry to sidebar I, by the way though i think we can both agree very excited about kurt russell's resurgence Oh, yeah. I can't wait to see him as Ego the Living Planet in Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. It, it's funny how vital he seems in the trailers for these movies after watching Stargate. And I, I did also – I forgot to mention this. You brought up last week. I watched the Stargate movie about a year ago, and that's why I remembered it so much where he looks just so out of it. I wonder if he was in a bad phase back then, but he certainly seems vital now. I love the Michael Keaton rebirth. I love the Stallone rebirth. I'm loving the Kurt Russell rebirth, I think. So, um, uh, anyways, back to the Americans. Kerry Russell's awesome. I know nothing about the guy – uh, don't hate him for it. Papa Bizzle not a fan of the lead male actor. He does like Harry Russell. Um, uh, so, um, right. So they're KGB people. This is set in the 80s, early 80s. 80s? Yeah. So you know, they deal with yeah.
1: Star Wars. Um, I think the pilot episode, you know, they're Russian. So they're talking about the Miracle on Ice game from this completely different perspective. They're always referring to the National Hockey League teams as really inferior hockey players right. because they're like, you know, Russian. Um, but yeah, it's all eighties. The first season I think involves the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Mm. Um, the by the Jody Foster guy. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um. Yeah. And they they talk about that. Um, yep.
0: Cause I go think, check out my y- contact podcast, people. Jodie Foster's <laughs> awesome in it. All right. Sorry. Go back.
1: So anyway, uh yes. so there it's hard to explain the plot of this particular episode because it is this very slow moving plot that really relies on you being invested in these characters to want to continue mm-hmm. watching. Because mm-hmm. after the first couple of seasons, they stopped having like big bads of each season. There were a couple of seasons where they were hunting American spies who were like black ops guys. And they Mm -hmm. were like the villain of the season. They've kind of gotten away from that in the last few years. And I actually think the storytelling has gotten better because of it, Mm -hmm. but it is kind of hard to, to explain what it's about. And it does put the audience in this interesting and kind of uncomfortable place of, um, philip and elizabeth which is carrie russell and matthew reese's character matthew reese is a co creator on the show by the way Mm -hmm. Um, in many ways they do the most stuff that a traditional antagonist or bad guy would do they kill a lot of people including innocent it's not just killing rival spies there's a scene in one season where basically when america is trying to get the uh Afghanis to rise up and kick the Russians out. Matthew Reeves pretends to be an American senator and gets a number of Afghan affiliates in a restaurant and he kills all of them. And then as he's changing out of his costume, a chef happens to see him. And so he has no choice but to shoot the chef in the head. Hmm. There's a scene where they're bugging this robot that the FBI uses and they discover a, an office worker, an old woman is still working that night. And Carrie Russell sits with her and forces her to eat all of the pills in her heart medication bottle until she ODs and dies. Basically, uh, you know, in this past episode, they're trying to extract a really deadly virus from a dead body, and they do it. But one of their friends, a guy named Hans, who's been on the show for several seasons, falls in, gets the the. Dead body touches his skin, exposes him to the blood, and they're afraid he's infected, so they shoot him in the head. So they are, in many ways, the bad guys. Um, and that woman who they make OD actually says, You people are evil, and you're evil. You're even more evil if you think you're somehow making the world a better place by doing this. Um, hmm. So it's really this interesting place of you like these characters, you do root for them. But you do have to grapple with what they are willing to do for their country, for their job, arguably for their own survival. Um, And it's really this interesting, very deep look at politics and morality and how they intersect and how they blend together and how maybe nobody is exactly a good guy or a bad guy. They're just people. It's really fascinating, complex storytelling.
0: All right. Um, I have a lot of questions. Okay. Okay. One. Carrie Russell is American. Matthew Reese Rise? Rees? Reese is how I think it's Reece. pronounced. Matthew Rees is English. Um do you buy them as Russians pretending to be Americans? Just from a Ye- straight up performance standpoint.
1: Yes, because they have really They speak they Russian think- to each other, I assume, at some points, right? Like two sentences in five seasons. Right, which is a
0: nice way of getting around it because it's not safe for them to speak Russian, so, yeah.
1: Right. In the pilot, um, there is a scene where they show Carrie Russell getting trained, and she's already speaking English pretty well, but she still has the accent. She doesn't quite know how to use contractions yet, so when she apologizes to her commanding officer, she says, I am sorry, and he's like, don't do that. Use the contraction. I'm sorry. So... Yes, you believe it because they have gone that far to strip all the Russian-ness out of themselves. You know, so, they, don't, yeah. they don't refer to themselves by their born names. They refer right, to themselves sure. as Philip and Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Um, so have, their commanding officer yeah. even says when he introduces them to each other, uh-huh. it is better if you don't know anything about your old lives. If she has always been Elizabeth for you, if he has always been Philip for
0: you, you can't give each other away. Mhm. quick sidebar um mm-hmm. about russians so there was you know a screen rant, they do all these these lists superhero lists which avengers the most powerful you know blah blah. blah right blah. right right and they're they're great lists but they're annoying because you have to go page by page so that you can yeah see i hate all the that ads. shit i despise that so i don't and, but they did have one talking about 15 superheroes that wolverine is like besties with that you didn't know about okay in the comics and Colossus. uh, uh not colossus uh psylocke is one kitty pride is one um there are a bunch of other hot female characters which i had never heard of before um but kitty yeah but jubilee obviously um rogue Mm -hmm. Um, but he is good friends with natasha romanoff in the comics because you know wolverine does fight with the avengers during long periods and uh right Even if he didn't, there's, you know, Nick Fury keeps an eye on both the X-Men and the Avengers, but um, in the comics, uh, and they don't even try to do this in the movies, Natasha has a type of almost Bucky-style healing power from the Russians. So she is from, like, post-World War II times. So, right like in the comics black widow is like seventy years old and so she's been friends with logan for a long time which i thought was really interesting hmm. um they don't even try that with scarlet um in the uh in the movies which is fine uh also it's it's interesting to think that oliver queen speaks way more russian than the russian spies on the americans is kind of funny I mean, he speaks well, that's, a lot of right. russian yeah
1: which is sort of again that's kind of the point is they they do everything they can to strip the Russian identity away so that they can only be Americans, Uh-oh. and then that leads to some moral quandaries. Early on, it seems like Philip wants to give up the life completely and just be an American. Yep. He, I think he still struggles with that to some extent, but he yep. does keep doing these missions. So mm-hmm. clearly, he's willing to continue doing his job. Sure. Um,
0: I have more questions. Okay. Okay. N- next question. Is this – does this have some social political commentary about the 80s or Americans in in general? And if so, is it sort of on the nose or is it more subtle? Forget Trump. There, I'm going to talk about that in a second. I'm talking about the first four or five seasons or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean there aren't a lot of moments that really shit on American culture. There's a few – I'm not saying shit on. I'm just
0: saying say anything.
1: I don't know if there really is. This isn't, you know, it's not like they're walking around talking about the decadence of Western society or anything like that. They don't seem to even really be communist, you know, in their perspective. Although, you know, when they talk about what they want their kids to do, Elizabeth said, well, maybe they'll get into trade union activism. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't have to just be Americans. And then the last few seasons have been about debating and slowly maybe coming around to the idea of training their daughter who is American born and thus is a true American citizen, uh, to be a second generation sleeper KGB agent. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. so
0: this leads daughter to my next question. By, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: The daughter is played by Holly Taylor. I called yeah. her Julie Taylor in a previous episode yeah, and Holly I apologize Taylor. for that. She is, she's 19 years old. She is terrific. She's mm-hmm. really, really, really good. Um, cool um she's canadian um she's born american or
0: she's canadian born but she's an american actress so maybe she was born in toronto and then yeah. moved here it is amazing though how many genre actors are com- come out of canada i mean it's yeah. just it's crazy it's, usually we see it with sci-fi like orphan black and bsg but um and the Stargate uh, properties. Um, okay. Follow-up question to that. Isn't it somewhat r- unrealistic that for all these years in the 80s, when th- these smart individuals must see the decline of communism and, and aren't even considering <laughs> changing sides uh, being here already? I mean, you know how much protection they could get potentially? But it sounds like they're doubling down on it if they want to train their daughter. I. No, the show definitely
1: acknowledges the way that the uh, the communist regime is crumbling around them. And I get the sense there's only, I think, two seasons left at this point. Maybe, yeah, I think it ends after season six. Um, I think the last season is going to probably end with the fall of the of the communists completely. And then what are they going to do? But yes, they are aware that things are crumbling back home. I think that's kind of making them double down on doing their job because they don't want to be another sign of the decay of their homeland. Um you know, this season one of the major characters from the last couple of years goes back to another Russian who does he's not an undercover agent, he works in the um the Russian embassy. I it's got a name, but like the KGB office in mm-hmm. uh the US. He goes back to Russia, and his task is to investigate this corruption in the food distribution uh, uh, departments of uh, the USSR. Hmm. So you you know they're talking about how we have enough food to feed our people, but we can't. This is bullshit. You need to figure out what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Character's name is Oleg, and he's played by a guy named Costa Ronin, who is a He's born in Russia, but he's also australian mm-hmm. he's he's very, very good. He kind of smirks a lot, but you kind of understand why he is the way he is um mm-hmm.
0: so um now, with all the Russia stuff going on with trump right is, are there any overtones that you sense in this show either intentional or unintentional unintentional meaning? just by exploring the historical relationship between Russia and the U S that there's some overtones or or like with Supergirl that they are inserting some stuff.
1: I don't see it that way. Now, some of it is I try not to think about Trump when I can avoid it because it mostly makes me really sad and nihilistic. So this show that I've been invested in for five years for way longer than Trump was anything more than a, Mm carnival show director on a reality show a reality game show Mm -hmm. uh you know this show now is just continuing all of those stories and all of those characters Mm -hmm. so i'm sure there's probably some parallels somebody could find i'm just
0: not watching it for that um and then my my final question about it um as a period piece so they're going around killing people that already seems to indicate that that's not a realistic show because as far as I know there weren't like lots of <laughs> killings, direct killings in the United States by Russian agents uh, other than maybe a political operative here and there, right? I mean that seems to be uh for fiction purposes, which is fine. I
1: mean, there were a fair number of undercover spies. One of the things the show does a lot of is Carrie Russell, well, both of them are trained in seduction tactics. And a lot of it is about first getting the people to sleep with them and mm-hmm. then getting them on their side or blackmailing them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that apparently, that's called honey trapping. And that did happen a lot. That was a tactic that Soviet agents used a, a, a fair amount. I don't know about the killing. Um, you know, they don't kill everybody, but. My point was more that the way that they kill people and the people they're willing to kill is more similar to what
0: you'd see out of a traditional villain than a traditional hero. Well, this is this is leading to my bigger question about period pieces. And um, for Bizzlecast listeners, I started watching Taboo. Haven't gotten haven't gotten very far in it, but Taboo's uh, setting time setting is like just far enough back in history mm-hmm. where it, it, <sighs> I'm not so concerned about the minutiae, uh, historical minutiae, whereas more modern shows like Mad Men or Americans or whatever, right? it gets tricky because if you're doing a period piece in relatively recent history and it's too accurate, then it probably gets boring because right. as bizarre and crazy and weird as this world is, for a serialized TV show, you can't p- have people killing other people. I'm not just talking about the Americans. I'm talking about any modern show. You can't have just people killing other people. You know, every single episode um, and and still be realistic. That just doesn't happen. That's why The Wire is both brilliant but also somewhat divisive among watchers because they don't kill people every episode. I mean, it's very restrained on the violence. And so when it happens, it feels earned and realistic. Mm -hmm. And so if you make it too realistic, it can be boring. But, you know, if you spruce it up too much um, and have too many embellishments, then it just really rings untrue relationships in particular. But it's it's hard to deny that um, you know Mad Men had its sort of own internal you know almost fantastical universe at times. The way it fetishized alcohol and cigarettes and clothing, almost in an American psycho type way, right? I mean, it was there was an internal universe i don't know if any of this is making sense like when you're watching the americans are you going oh this is history this is the 80s this is you know yes fictionalized version but this is historical or do you sort of um and maybe we can we'll talk about this in legion later the way legion specifically tries to disorient us in terms of time period um are you feeling like this is sort of a historical drama or it's just sort of a suspense drama that happens to be set in this period, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say it's the latter. Okay. It's a suspense. It's a drama that happens to be set in the 80s. Mad Men, I don't know if I would say it fetishizes the, the 60s. It definitely doesn't romanticize that period at all, which is what I, I liked about it so much and yeah. made it different from a lot of the language we used to describe that time. The 80s are neither fetishized or romanticized, you know they talk about the Star Wars initiative in the first season. A lot Mm -hmm. of that is about trying to investigate whether America can actually build this thing. Is this a real threat? Uh, Steal the plans for it if it exists. And then eventually they discover it's bullshit. It's impossible. Forget about it. And that plot, one, it wasn't one of the best plots the season has had. But it also, it more, I think, was supposed to just speak to the point that this fear that we were going to blow each other up with nukes was really, really powerful for the entirety of the Cold War, and people who live who are around today really don't understand or can relate to that that constant <laughs> paranoia about nuclear war. They now, should though,
0: because we have a president now who wants to rebuild up our arsenal.
1: Hundred percent. But up until now, the you know between the fall of the USSR and the last six months basically or less this idea that nuclear warfare was something we needed to be afraid of Mm -hmm. completely absent from national conversation, political conversation. We just sort of Mm -hmm. have all these nukes and we don't really, we never felt the urge to get rid of them or, or update our launch and security software for them. We're still, you still launch nukes with those old giant floppy disks in a lot of places. Um, and so this show by talking about Star Wars, yeah, it's a little silly in retrospect, but if you were around in the 80s and you were really nervous the other side was going to launch 10,000 nukes at you, right. if you heard about something that could protect them from response from a, a you know counterattack, you would really be afraid of that because you would be afraid it would be the, they would have the one thing that would pre- stop how to put this they would have the thing that gets rid of deterrence, which Mm -hmm. is the theory that if I use my nukes, you'll use yours. Neither of us can use them.
0: Mutually assured destruction.
1: Right. And if their destruction isn't assured anymore, they have no reason not to destroy
0: you. Right. Um, Which is why the most terrifying uh, scenario still today are loose or rogue nukes. Absolutely. Because even if you're talking about Iran or even North Korea, they might do missile tests and threaten to do stuff but they're not going to launch it because, you know, like if Iran launches, Israel and the U.S. could turn Iran to a pile of rubble in an in right. an in a instant. I'm not saying this is good. To, it's, you know, it's not the preferable no, I, scenario. But it, but it, you know, it seems to ensure like a 99% chance of countries not launching nukes at each other, as opposed to a suitcase nuke bomb, which is exactly. really scary.
1: Yeah, but. Uh, it, I really believe that if one country launches one nuke, it will yeah. put – I mean we're basically – this whole thing of deterrence is a mind game. And yeah. the only thing that it takes to end it is one person saying, I don't want to play anymore, and when they yeah. quit, everyone will quit. And then nuclear yeah. war will become a legitimate extension of conventional warfare, and then yeah. we're all screwed.
0: I um, think if the Americans was more politically – directly political – I would be more interested. In fact, I would, if they combined Homeland and the Americans, I would love that show. I mean, if they use the modern day that Homeland does, but instead of jihadists, they, you know, have had a Russian scenario. Because let's be honest, man, Putin's been in power for a long time. And right. there's probably this stuff going on at least as much today as in the mid 80s. It's, you know, it, I mean, it, it's taking a much different form. But if you can, if you, if you consider all the political operatives in, in Trump's and other people's, you know, offices who are either direct or indirect Russian agents and who knows, you know, economically, they have all sorts of stuff going on. The Ukraine, Putin's causing all sorts of trouble all over Europe. He's, I mean, Putin will fund any uh, anti-authoritarian group. Um, in Europe just to stir up the the government in like Scandinavia, Central Europe, Western Europe. It doesn't matter if they're fascists or communists or whatever, he's sending them money just to create shit. So I think that would actually be really interesting. I mean, think about this. What if after season five or, or, or six, they They do a time jump, and we were with Holly in the modern day, doing the same thing for for Putin or something that would be really cool um It just seems like I appreciate the restraint not being overly political, but if I'm going to watch a fairly recent uh you know period piece um I guess I'd want some of those overtones although not heavy handed It's really delicate balance I'll give you that
1: yeah it's also i mean this is now thirty years ago it's not as recent as anybody might think, and I when shows late in their existence go through a massive tonal shift, it usually is not a good thing. So I am much more comfortable with the Americans sticking with this time period, sticking with the culture as it is. And if people watching it can find ways to relate it to what that's going on now, cool. But I don't think the show should change to directly go after that because of what's happened in the last – Six months basically. Uh, I really yeah. think the show has created a formula with characters that we like, and I don't want to see Holly 20 years in the future because I want to see her continue to grow as a 19 year old, and I want to see how her, as a native born American, developing a native born American identity. She is a, a strong Christian, for instance, whereas her mom, you know, Elizabeth quotes uh it's stalin right who said religion is the opiate in the masses or was it lenin that was no that was, or was it Ma- marx. marx that was marx okay sorry i've it's been a while since i've read the communist
0: manifesto but um <laughs> well but yeah, he's been quoted extensively by people like like lenin stalin. okay so but you know neither care when
1: elizabeth finds out that page has been going to a church and wants to get baptized and, and everything she is Livid about it. She, I mean, she comes around to it eventually, uh, but she is furious, and Philip is not happy about it either. So Holly is not. I'm sorry. Uh, the page, that's the character's name, is not giving up her faith because her parents tell her it's crap. Um, so to see them f- battle over this, and to see the ways in which just being an American has pulled Page away from the rest of her family is fascinating and i don't want to see them skip all of the rest of the stumbling blocks these relationships are going to hit mm-hmm. so that we can see what she's like as a 35 year old you know working in the cia now or whatever she winds up doing
0: oh yeah okay so you think she she could flip the daughter could flip
1: i don't think is the daughter is going to turn them in but it is this interesting question of She is being pulled by the culture just by being born into it in one direction. Their son, who is not nearly as interesting or as good an actor, but he's fine, is – being pulled in the same way in different ways but also into a american culture mm-hmm. you know i think atari debuts at some point on the show or some video game system mm-hmm. and he starts sneaking into people's houses to play it because he thinks it's the coolest thing he's ever seen right. and this is exactly
0: um, why i don't normally like recent period pieces for, you know because of like oh the atari was invented here it is oh the nintendo was invented check out this car that came out you know the delorean or whatever yeah, i mean right but it presents all the, and he is into cars
1: now some of that is he and his dad are both into american cars i think his dad more as an act but Mm -hmm. but again these are presented not as these amazing things to be nostalgic about they're being portrayed as these highly corruptive things that stole people's attention away um and kind of you know this kid who might have turned out one way Started getting a touch of video games, and it was almost like an addiction
0: because he was le- sneaking into other people's houses to play them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so- I talk, I talk, um, this will be my, I mean, I, I don't have any other questions, sir. Um, but, uh, I- just really quick connection so i finally after like a year and a half of sitting on it released my x-men days of future past uh right. commentary which of course takes place in 1973 and i talk about in the commentary that while i liked the movie the first couple times i do really really like bordering on love it now but i just sort of liked it the first couple times the period piece thing was actually getting in the way a little bit because it was again all these cutesy things like they go to evan peters's house and like look at all the the you know timely yeah. relevant stuff that he has in there right. he's got a blah 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 and this and the, that stuff kind of either goes away or grows on you w- with repeat viewings. Um, and just to get, you know, McAvoy with the long hair and the high collared shirts and Jennifer Lawrence dressing up and right. all the, you know, early 70s hippie clothes and so forth was worth it just for that. So that was like a barrier for me. And then I eventually uh, actually embraced it and realized that it was important that they spent so much time in that movie doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know that The Americans is a show I, I would watch because i i would i would want a little more political meat and that's nothing to do with the sh- that show it's just again you know time period stuff that's pre i should say that's sort of post world war ii i um uh or even like Downton Abbey, which we which we talked about before you know like i'm not into period pieces for period pieces sake now it seems like you actually are going the other way where you just like the show because it's a damn good drama
1: yes exactly i don't yeah tend to love period pieces just because they're period pieces. Down Nabby is a really well-made show with really compelling characters. And in a lot of ways the show is about how they deal with the loss of the world that they're in. The same could very much be said of Mad Men, which is about men and women trying to figure out how to redefine themselves when the gender roles they've all defined themselves into over the previous 20 years or whatever are finally starting to break down. Um, And who can change? How do they change? Can they change? Mm -hmm. Um, And this show is just a really good show that is set in the eighties and has this really interesting premise that gives them the freedom to really explore these questions of morality as it relates to national identity and this idea of good guys versus bad guys and considering how we have talked about the Russians since the birth of communism, basically, right. it really does flip the conversation on its head of, yeah, these two Russians are doing horrible things, right. but you really like them and you really want them to succeed and you don't vote root for the FBI to catch them, yep. um, even as you like the FBI guys because all of those yeah. characters are really good too.
0: Yeah, um, and oh, and that was my final point. I have trouble watching shows season after season where the main characters are bad guys, even if they're sympathetic bad guys. I, you know, I mean, The Wire. I can do it because everyone's flawed and corrupt, and because right. everyone also has a redeemable side to them, and and it it changes. Um, but also, just the tension of their secret identity, I think, would just cause my head to explode after a, a season or two of constantly. Because I would start to root for them, and then, you know, and I'd feel weird for rooting for them, but I wouldn't want their identity to be blown, blah, 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 blah. But. Uh, sure, but you watched Breaking Bad, and yes, Walter which is, White becomes yeah. a bad guy yep. in the second season,
1: basically. He nailed
0: it. I was you just know. going there. The once one watches, show is that one. That was yeah, the once one. he
1: watches Tuco beat the guy to death at the end of season one. That's it. Walter White is dead, and he's Heisenberg after that. You see him, his conscience die on his face as he sort of
0: Actually, rationalizes. I think, I think it's when he almost beats, Tuco almost beats Jesse Pinkman to death, because that's when he shaves his head and becomes Heisenberg. I, I, well, it's one of those two, or both, okay. yeah. It's
1: it's early either way. I mean, did you watch yeah. The Sopranos? Did you like The Sopranos? No, like,
0: I'm not a mob guy. That's the okay. thing. Okay. Yeah. I
1: mean, I love The Sopranos, and he's a bad guy. He strangles people with garret wire, and he kills his own family members when he thinks they're a threat to them. So, yeah. but he is, you know, I I, I don't mind. The idea of an unlikable protagonist if there's a reason why if if the show has sort of a point it's trying to make yeah. and i think the sopranos was trying to undo the traditional storytelling where the good guy had to be the immaculate good guy you know right. I, I think tony soprano was the first modern kind of loner anti-hero
0: i'm not it, the first person who's ever said that um, yeah and even even gaius baltar I mean, right? He is now easily maybe my favorite character in terms of when I rewatch it. I will almost like sometimes just watch the Baltar heavy episodes because they're sure. so funny. But when you're first watching it, you're going, "I hate this guy. I want to, you know, I
1: want to." He's bring pretty obnoxious, neck. but he was never the. I, I would argue he was never the main character. Right, and that's my
0: point that's and my the point it was
1: never about him really
0: right. i mean yes. it was about
1: adama and starbuck i thought were the two major characters
0: oh well, no it was about the the family it was about adama yeah. Roslin, apollo and starbuck um, yeah exactly yeah but in all of those four uh, well carrots it's hard to know but the other three certainly had good intentions most of the time even when the president becomes somewhat of a dictator you can see where she's coming from Uh, Adama and Apollo, uh, or the Adama's are weak, sort of, there's some character weaknesses. Morally, they're usually thinking the right way. Um, And so I guess what I'm saying is with an ensemble cast, and, and maybe this is, can we bridge to the expanse with this? Yeah. with an ensemble cast you can have characters go dark light dark light neutral you know but as long as you have enough characters that you're rooting for at a given time or characters like um you know what west chatham's character uh, amos um right. who goes through some ambiguous and not totally clear shit uh in this Uh, uh, season 2 episode 7 of The Expanse called Seventh Man which aired this past week you know Amos is clearly the most uh, flawed you know morally and just disturbed in the head Um, you know but but we've gotten to the point where we can kind of root for him so ensemble shows I'm cool with you know seeding in dark characters and not knowing where some characters are going but yeah generally shows like Breaking Bad I cannot watch you know but again the the humanization of, of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman and the fact that there's always people that are worse and more psychotic around them. Um, you know, I mean the, like just the existence of Tuco and then Gus and then the bad guys in the final season or two you know you find just enough reason to keep rooting for them uh maybe you'd say the same thing about the americans um you find just enough reason to keep rooting for them so okay man well thanks for the americans uh um premiere review and we'll certainly be tracking that um uh oh really quickly before we get to the expanse i had this question in my mind so in the last 10 years yeah which is the better channel overall and i'm not necessarily talking about number of awesome shows though you can take it that way FX or AMC? Ugh, that's a good question. I know.
1: I would still give. A- Excuse me. I would still give AMC the edge, but FX event. has come on really, really, really strongly in the last two years. Um, and I would say right now, FX is better. I'm sorry. Yeah, right now, FX is probably better than AMC in terms of really high quality television shows, and variety of TV uh-huh. available. Why do you I think, think FX also yeah. has more scripted shows on the air than AMC. Yeah. But AMC, f- over the last 10 years, I mean, it's hard to beat Breaking Bad and Mad Men. I yeah. mean, it's really hard to, you know, FX is not at a one-two punch as good as that.
0: Right. And FX does get nominated for stuff, but it seems like AMC always wins. Well, FX takes a lot of, like, m- the Emmys for miniseries and shorter
1: shows, like the their O.J. Simpson story, American mm-hmm. Crime Story, cleaned up. I mean, it yeah. fucking swept everything at the Emmys. And the year before, Fargo, which was also FX, did the exact same thing. American Horror Story has won a few acting Emmys. Um, it's winning more now than AMC by a pretty wide margin because AMC doesn't have any one thing on it that's any good i mean it's all genre-y stuff like walking dead and we're about to start into the badlands Mm -hmm. which are fun shows but not the kind of shows that win awards
0: Mm -hmm. all right so moving to the expanse um season two episode seven seventh man it is called another great episode this was a bit of a I don't want to say filler episode. It was certainly they slowing things down to do some world building, which is perfectly fine. Yep. Um, I would say it, it was pretty clearly about humanizing Bobby Draper on the one hand, and then also giving the Rosananti crew time to interact with civilians and show that they're, they're pretty good people overall too. Although Amos is clearly disturbed, which I want to ask you about um and then we int- i don't know if we, did we introduce anderson dawes in this episode or he just took center stage as a opponent among the belters against fred johnson
1: he w- showed up in a couple of episodes of season
0: one Where he knew because he knew thomas jane right he knew miller yeah
1: he yeah he knew miller he actually tried to throw miller out of an airlock right. uh, or he had one of his agent his agents do it but yeah he is uh jared harris is one of my favorite tv character actors so he is so he's like got that british cockiness which yep. maybe should be called
0: cockneyness but i'm ching um i'd almost call it australian cockiness i mean i know he's not australian but he, he has that sort of almost cowboyish type thing i mean a
1: little but yeah. all the characters i mean he was moriarty in the second Robert Downey Jr., Guy Ritchie, Sherlock movie. No. Very, very good Uh-oh. in that role. The movie was a,
0: it was the second one? Yeah. So they Mark inter- Strong was in the first one. Who was he? Yes. He was just some guy. I don't uh, even remember his name. The first one was really good. The second one was forgettable.
1: Yeah, but I, I, I've i seen clips of him, and he is really good in the role. Yeah. And then, of course, he was Lane Price on Mad Men. Um, and here he is i mean he looks badass like he looks muscular he looks jacked for an old british guy and uh he's really cool um and he really takes the center stage on this episode and i was waiting for anderson dawes i can't do that that expanse patois very well but to come back and he all the scenes with him are just sparkling
0: okay so he does say to uh uh, to um holden at one point that he says, you remind me of someone just missing the hat. That's all. Yeah. Um, uh, Referring to Miller. Of course. They continue to make Fred Johnson seem more like a total good guy. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this character, if nothing else is, I mean, Fred Johnson is starting to lose control of the situation without even realizing it, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was important. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, it's funny, Stephen Strait in a very, 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 very micro way is almost like Paul Atreides among the Fremen right now, right? He's the, he's the outsider that's somehow taken a leadership mantle and people are starting to follow even yes. though he he grew up with the you know quote unquote enemy, mm-hmm. um, you know I mean this, this is a pretty common uh, science fiction trope or, or just trope in general in literature, but I think it works really well because he so clearly has sided with the Belters from the beginning. I I really wish they had released all four comic books in the in the Expanse miniseries at once because I know there's going to be way more backstory about Holden and I mm-hmm. wish I knew it. Now I should probably just read the novel and that way I would get it. Um, it but again, sold through performance, I, I think he just seems more and more comfortable in his own skin on that show, you know. And, and even now, it's to the point, man. Even when they give him a cheesy line. He mostly nails it, like yeah. When they're talking about arrows, he says, "quote I was there when we killed the bastards who did it." You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. th- that's a Stephen Amell line. You know, I mean, he's I, I don't know. I don't think he's much worse than Stephen Amell as an actor. It's just Stephen Amell gets to be such a more b- badass who doesn't really have to talk that much as as the Green Arrow. But Stephen Straith's delivering lines really well. They really all are. Um, It's an interesting thought whether Holden and Fred Johnson, uh, as Earthers, are sort of representing sort of paternalistic, hypocritical, liberal elites among the Belters, right? I mean... Telling them what to do and that they have yeah. their best interests in mind. Um, again, yeah. I'm not referring to the current political situation, but just in general, the notion of you know, almost like neo or ne- neo-imperialism, yeah. something like that, right? So I that mean, was really interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I just dropped a line. Naomi
1: of stuff. even says that yep. you guys sound like Earthers trying to tell the Belters how to run the belt. Yeah. Um, and even though she hates Anderson Dawes and hates the OPA, she is. Doesn't she doesn't want to see this same cycle continue and she's afraid that if Holden and Fred Johnson are the ones running the show, they will be. You know, it Mm -hmm. will. It'll just keep going of the belters not being seen as anything other than trash,
0: you know, subhumans. Yep. Um what I like is they're not even trying to hide the fact that this season is really two parts pre Miller's death and post Miller's death we know mm-hmm. that they just started Caliban's war in the last two episodes and that that was a conscious decision as we've talked about and you know little things you know we don't there's not a lot of um Adoshlo although great more great swear, swearing from her um but Christian at the beginning she says the whole system has been a tinderbox since Eros and that's yeah. like a really brilliant uh, writing uh, narrative stroke to communicate that time has passed and we're moving on to a, a semi new story or a new chapter in the story, you know? And then we see them giving out stuff to refugees on, on series, And it's clear that they've been embedded in series. And the fact that people are listening to Holden despite being an earther, we just get the sense that enough time has passed that like new things are happening. I don't know. They're just, they're nailing these transitions. I, I would agree with that completely um, um and then just a couple more quick thoughts um i mean they're they've given gunny let's put it this let me start by saying the interrogation of gunny and what exactly the mars uh, higher-ups are doing to her and to the entire situation is really hard to understand i think it's interesting that it seems like early on in the expanse series that you know earth is going to be the evil big brother but it's seeming more and more like mars is the evil big brother and at least the way they're framing it and i gotta say man I, i'm i don't know if um uh, who plays gunny I always I need to have her name in front of me. Hold on. I got it. Um, if uh, Frankie Adams. Yeah. Oh, by the way, a correction from a long time ago, I've been meaning to make. She is from New Zealand and she is an indigenous person, but not indigenous New Zealand. She's actually Samoan, um, yeah. not an indigenous New Zealander. So hence her, 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 you know, uh, fairly uh, sizable and strong f- physical form. Uh, As Samoans are known for, if you even watch football, (laughs) you've seen that this is the case. Um, You know, they tend to be among the tallest and strongest people in the world for whatever reason. Uh, But she's got that thick New Zealand accent in her. She kind of reminds me of Stephanie Jacobson uh, from Battlestar Razor uh, movie because of just the, you know, her kind of bitchy New Zealand uh, militant thing she's got going on. Um, but they're giving her the perfect path to fleshing out her character. Even though I was hoping for some more space combat stuff, uh, I'm actually really cool with the decision to, to take her on her own solo journey now where she, the people that she was ready to just die for an episode ago, she has to be are questioning and suspicious. Her out, yeah. yeah. What was your interpretation of, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the text and the subtext of what was going on with her?
1: So clearly she saw something that uh, you know, she was talking about the seventh man, which was the one the Earthers were really shooting at and it didn't have a spacesuit on. So clearly this is either an alien or a protomolecule infected human. And it would seem to me that somebody high up in the Martian government knows what that is and once they found out that she knew about it decided to censor her, which, does make sense that if you were Jules Pierre Mao and you're trying to create a war, you probably want to have agents on both sides to make sure you get the outcome you wanted. Because if you that way, if you run into somebody like Christian who wants to prevent a war at all costs and is really formidable, you have a backdoor way to get the outcome you want, even if she succeeds on her end. Um, I still think that my initial prediction that. She will do something on her own. She will go rogue that will essentially cause a war to start. I still think I'm right about that because now she feels like she doesn't have anybody on her side. The Martian government wants her to lie, and she is even more pissed off now because not only is she mad about the Donager and the way the Earthers have robbed her family of the chance to terraform Mars into a green planet – now she feels like the Earthers killed all of her soul, her friends. So now she's really mad, and she has no recourse to get revenge militarily. So
0: she's really going to go rogue and fig- and do, do it on her own. If she's not on the Rocinanti crew by the end of the season, I'll cut off my left hand. It seems that impossible. I don't
1: see coming. I, I think more oh, she's yep. going to be a season two character and get killed. I, I, I just no, don't. No, 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 no. You might be right. I don't think she'd fit
0: in, and I just... That's the point. That's why it'd be great. All of them would be butting heads with her. They need another woman. She'd be the best fighter among them by far. And if she wants to start a war, and Mars is selling her out, and she sees Earth as the enemy, then the Belters is the clear people to go to in her situation. I don't know. Yeah, I, I it could happen. I if mean, they cert- build up her character and build up the Mars fighting force thing and then she just gets killed without ever doing any real combat, I'll be really disappointed because she looks like a badass. And there's no way they cast someone who looks as strong and badass as her and not have her fight um and, and to spend all of this time i mean the only slow parts of this episode were sort of the long um interrogation stuff that was going on with her which i was fine with uh i just feel like if you're building this character as you pointed out they really were waiting till mid-season we didn't see her first half of the season now that we're in caliban's war and I assume we're going to take Caliban's War into the third season, so I, maybe she will die in season three. I highly doubt it'll be the end of the season after spending so much time with her and only having a handful of, season, of episodes left in this in this season. And I'll be disappointed because I really like her. I think the the the, the this really like one dimensionally badass character and how she's played it since she was almost killed and how vulnerable she is. I mean, the makeup work they did on her it just looks great, and, and she's doing an, a really good job i think so i'm hoping she ends up on the rosa but i'm certainly hoping even more that they don't kill her uh, uh, you know soon or there yeah. better be a good reason there better be like a really good reason
1: yeah i just everything about her strikes me as she is kind of without realizing it being maneuvered into an outcome that she wants but that other
0: people want more no, she and calls the ultimately- guy out on it and that amazing thing Right, but she, she goes, like, "Wait, did again, you just tell me that you wanted me to say that we started shooting?" And then the guy says, "Yes," and he tries to rationalize it, and she like cuts him off, and she's like, "That's total bullshit," but whatever or something like that. I mean, she she totally knows what's going on. She does, but even she
1: might not be It's this thing of do they can they predict how a character like that would react if they tell her to do something? And so if they can tell, if they know what she's going to do, are they censoring her with the knowledge that it'll probably lead her to do something that creates a war? Like again, who is pulling the strings that is leading to the decisions the Martian government is making with her? that's mm-hmm. that's the question that I really have and that I'm hoping we get an answer to in the coming season uh, episodes. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately she'll be sacrificed essentially. She's a pawn being moved around and then, she will be sacrificed to create some larger outcome that somebody else wants. Okay. Whether it's all right, let's put a bet on or this. the Mao Corporation let's or put a I don't we'll, know what.
0: We're putting a bet on this. Um, let's see, what should we bet? Something not too expensive but cool. Um Okay, the Expanse comic books. Four four okay. it's a four four of them. Okay. And uh they'll probably go on sale when all four are released, so it won't be that expensive. So the bet is She is, for me, the following have to be true or else I lose. So this is going to be easier for you, okay? She will be alive at the end of season two. She will be on the Rosinante crew or at least having interacted with them and is sort of going rogue um, and, uh, you know, working with them to potentially, you know, stem the war from that angle or try and use them to start a war from that angle. But basically, she's going to get away from the Martians who are drugging her and shit like that and, and, and try and meet up with the belters. So she has to be a- alive and engaged with the main crew by the end of season two. That's the bet. Okay. All right. So if those things happen, I win. If, if neither of those things happen or something else happens, you win. Sure. All right, let's go for it. All right, there we go. Boom. Um, speaking of which, when is the defenders coming out? So we can finally find out that Jessica <laughs> Jones is in <laughs> fact, the leader of the defenders who owes who a comic book or whatever. Um, I'll oh, by that the way, up. Wolverine, very engaged with the hand stuff in the comics. Actually, more than Daredevil. <laughs> um, that was originally... Uh, yeah, all the Japanese stuff uh, started with Wolverine and Psylocke and stuff in the 80s. Um, so they they repurposed that a little bit. The, actually, you know what? This is a good transition, man. Well, I don't want to cut you off if you have more to say about The Expanse. It seems like we're we're... You know, this was a pretty... Pretty easy to uh, digest episode. Yeah. Um, I was going to talk about Iron Fist and the early reviews being really poor. And with my bad experience with Luke Cage, which got great reviews for the most part, I'm going to definitely watch the pilot of Iron Fist. But if it's bad, that might be it. Now, we are for sure going to review the first episode. And if it's decent, I'd say we could fit in the first two or three, right? Yeah. You sent me the initial link of the early reviews, so what are you hearing and what happened? All
1: right, so Defenders, nobody knows quite when it's going to come out. My hunch is fall. Luke Cage debuted in September 2016. My hunch is Defenders will do the same because then it'll be about six months after Iron Fist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, initial reviews for Iron Fist are that it is far and away the worst of the four Netflix shows. It is unoriginal, unoriginal, Uh, they're not calling it racist, but they're just saying it's not well-conceived. The characters are blank. The dialogue isn't interesting. There's no emotional core to the show. And what I was afraid was going to be the case is the case that Danny Rand's character just comes off as another Bruce Wayne or Oliver Queen, another rich white American who gets stranded in Asia somewhere and learns ninja powers and then comes back and, is, you know, a tortured, rich white guy with ninja powers. Um, And we've already seen that with Arrow and every Batman movie ever, basically. But certainly uh, with the Dark Knight movies, Um, this idea of you give up your humanity, you give up being a person to become this soldier warrior thing. Mm -hmm. I think actually the trailer even for Iron Fist said something like that. Um, You become a weapon or something like that. So it's apparently it's pretty uninspired. I will still be checking it out. I will still probably be watching the whole thing. But if it's mediocre, we will review the pilot and then maybe catch up with me a few weeks after that at the midseason point and then a few weeks after that when I've watched the whole thing. But Mm -hmm. um, if it's as bad as all these reviews say – could turn out not to be. We could still turn out to like it, but probably we won't. Um, we're not going to do the three episodes a week push that we promised earlier because we got a lot to talk about anyway, and it doesn't feel worth it for something that sounds like it's not going to be that much fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what to think at this point. I mean, f- just Who knows, you, we have all of next week to talk
1: about this. Let's yeah, wait until yeah, yeah. An just really quickly though,
0: before we, I just want kill to point it. out that. You know, Jessica, the Jessica Jones creators, being the Jessica Jones creators, are constantly retweeting idiots who, in very inarticulate ways, uh, make highly disparaging comments like Jessica Jones is crap, Daredevil's the best show ever, Luke Cage, so much better, Jessica Jones, boo, you know, all this Wait, hate. What were you uh, talking about? Does, does this the actual Jessica Jones, whoever runs the Jessica Jones Twitter feed retweets morons trashing jj and and then make snarky comments about them or whatever Oh, okay like in the voice of jessica jones even though it's not right cri- right Kristen I got you. ritter yeah um and so you know like the initial reaction to the most recent iron fist news or or trailer a week or two ago all the nerds were like what no costume season one you know i mean yeah, that's, yeah. you know like one of the most controversial parts of daredevil season one was that he didn't have a costume Who fucking cares, nerds? season one of Daredevil was a billion times better than season two, and I didn't even like season one that much, Jessica Jones is never gonna have a costume, and, and that's amazing, you know but, but, I will say on behalf of those nerds, if you're gonna put out mediocre superhero stuff, then you have to do the Arrow and Flash thing and make it totally comic booky and pulpy, right I mean, if, if, if they just stopped taking these Netflix series so seriously and had more fun with them even in wearing goofy costumes, that would at least, you know, and, and, and comic booky, larger larger-than-life villains like right. large psychic talking gorillas or whatever you have in flash. exactly at least you have something to hold on to there as a comic book fan so i don't know who they're trying to please at this point
1: i'm not sure either and again i i very much compare the defenders i'm sorry i very much compare iron fist to both thor and the first captain america movie which struck me Thor especially struck me as a film only made to get us from where we were before the movie was made to having Thor in the Avengers. Like I really feel like the whole conversation, the whole movie exists purely for the two minute conversation between Thor and Coulson where Thor is like, son of Cole, we fight on the same side. I must go now. And Colson's like, okay, but I'm I want your so promise that if we're in I'm controlling myself d-
0: right now. I'm so controlling myself right now you're I'm really sorry, I, frustrating me i
1: i i recognize
0: that but i really think <laughs> thor is still better than thor the
1: dark world but i really think thor is purely there so that we have a reason why he's in the avengers and they literally call captain america the first avengers and they end it with him meeting sam jackson and then immediately when the
0: movie is over in theaters, it goes into the tr- first trailer for the Avengers. So- Thor, Thor one is the only time we see a multi-dimensional Thor. Captain America gets more and more dimensional with each movie. I think First Avenger. I just it think the whole writing is so crap, is so bad that it's, it's I, I not. can't. The Earth stuff is hilarious. That's the whole point. The stuff yeah, the Earth. Earth
1: stuff is okay, but everything on Asgard sucks. The confrontation oh. between him and Loki is so okay. much right. worse okay, fine. in its writing
0: than it, okay, than fine. that same confrontation is in the Avengers. So, dude, you after I'm sorry, I, I gotta, I got we have to talk about this for just one sec. You ripped on X One and X Two last week after saying yeah. X Two was one of your favorite comic movies. Now you yeah, say it's not I, very good. What comic book movies do you like? Can you name five? Yes. Okay. The go. Avengers. Yeah. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Two. Deadpool. Winter um, okay. Soldier. I'm not really counting Deadpool, but okay, fine. Winter Soldier. A, okay. How is Deadpool
1: not a comic book movie? I'm talking about PG
0: 13 uh, in the normal Marvel universe, not the Rated R stuff. Oh,
1: I've got a. name. They've got to all be Marvel Cinematic. No, no, no. They,
0: they can be DC.
1: Oh, okay. Uh,. I don't remember what Sin City was rated. Uh, so you like
0: Sin City better than X2?
1: Yes. Oh, I find it more rewatchable, and oh, Mickey Rourke oh, is more badass than anybody. I, I'm i sorry. I just There is a lifelessness to the X movies because there is a lifelessness to Brian Singer's style. There is a lifelessness to Superman Returns 2. I am not as big a fan of that as I used to be. I can't help it. I've watched these movies enough times that the initial nerd thrill of seeing them it's gone and all that's left is a really objective not objective no one's objective but a a, a dispassionate appraisal of the experience and it's not as fun to watch these x movies anymore deadpool is still fun maybe it's gonna wear out too at some point but for me yeah i just i never liked the thor movie but the x movies i loved them when they came out i loved them for a really long time But I think looking back at them, it's hard to call them anything but – very average, you know, examples of the genre in the face of the better stuff that's come out. So sin. wait,
0: so you're saying the Patrick Stewart Ian McKellen relationship is lifeless? You're telling me that Wolverine getting to know and like, and then eventually defending viciously the kids at the X mention is lifeless? I know it's a little choppy at points, but come on, it's not like you know, it's not like the Phantom Menace. You got to be kidding me. There's lots going on that. No, movies. it's not as bad as the Phantom Menace. Of course not.
1: I mean, Batman v Superman is the only movie where the writing is as awful as the star wars
0: prequels i think all the i think the dark knight movies are as as um uh lacking in in motion if you will as the x movies at least i I mean i i think they're at least as is clunky which ones the, the, all three Dark Knight movies, I, I think, yeah. have, have tons of clunky dialogue and never quite buy Christian Bale. And, you know, those are considered, you know, Dark Knight's considered like the best comic book movie ever by a lot of people. And uh, I've said on this podcast that I think The Dark Knight is a good movie elevated
1: by the amazing performance of one actor. Yeah. I've said that. I've said I thought Christian Bale is only okay as Batman. Um, I, I think Kevin Conroy, as the voice of Batman in the animated series, may be the best Batman there's ever been.
0: Um, I just, yeah. I mean, look in terms of what I would rewatch today, I totally have Avengers winter soldier and guardians ahead of X2, but you know, X2 came out almost 15 years ago and, and, yeah, I mean, all the movies back then were a little, the Spider-Man movies were clunky. I know I dislike them more than most, but you know, it was it was really the early years. I agree, Brian Singer has a problem with emotion, but when he has great characters like the new cast in Days of Future Past, and you have James McAvoy just killing it. I mean, Hugh Jackman and 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 McAvoy and and, and Future Past are amazing. I mean, look, that movie has by far. A, become my favorite of the x-men movie of the uh, brian singer x-men movies and it's not even close yeah. i don't know why that one in particular worked from an emotional standpoint maybe it was just because of mcavoy's kind of psychic journey i think it just works for
1: you on an emotional standpoint
0: uh, i have level. tons of friends who that's their favorite or one of their favorite comic book movies and, and i have a it's lot also of friends the who one think it's Okay. Not, uh, it's also the can't. one that made the most money by far, it had the best critical reviews Shit. by far. The most uh, it's the one X-Men movie that people I know that don't even like comic movies other than Deadpool like because people t- tend to like the X-Men when it's decent. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Look, if you've cooled on Brian Singer, that's fine. You're allowed to change your, your point of view. But I, I, I think if we just want to point out flaws, I mean, Winter Soldier and Avengers are the only ones that have almost no flaws. Even Guardians, I think, has a lot. I mean, the first 30 minutes of Guardians is really strung out, you know, it, 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 yeah, but it's over so the top. You know, and Drax is, Drax is maybe the most overrated character of all time. I love Drax. He's oh a my horrible God. actor, Jeez. and I know that's part of the joke. But that's joke. the
1: point. He's so funny and lovable.
0: You can only I, pull only that The only once. problem I have with
1: Guardians is that Ronan is terrible and Thanos is not very interesting. Yeah, and, and by I'm, the wa-
0: way, you're also missing Jason in X2, the Jason professor x thing which is one of my favorite things ever and i don't normally like terrifying things like that you know brian cox amazing as a bad guy in x2 way better than most of the bad guys we've got in the marvel cinematic universe
1: x2 is still in my top 10 It has just fallen it's fallen out of number one it might even still be in the top five for me honestly uh or or sixth maybe it's just i can't watch Maybe it's simply that I've seen it too many times at this point. I've seen it six times or so, and I can't do what you seem to be able to do of recreate the high of the first time you see something every time. Every time I watch something that I know really well, with only a very, very few number of exceptions, the thrill is less and less. It's chasing diminishing returns. It's like an addiction where you keep doing more to get the same buzz and i can't get it anymore
0: i I I rarely watch x2 but i'm not gonna let the fact that i've watched it a million times and don't you know watch it a ton more skew the fact that i know it well and think it's one of the better comic book movies i mean yeah it's not the one i'm gonna pop in most most likely Okay, so then. Which goes back to our discussion earlier, where I was trying to figure out if there's a way we could delineate those movie and TV properties that we just enjoy watching a lot versus the ones that we can acknowledge are good and maybe we once enjoyed, or even like Legion, which we'll transition into now with the X Men. Legion's sure. a show I can acknowledge is a good show. Way. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh,
1: I was yeah. wondering how we were going to get out of this conversation, and that's oh, a good no, I first we transition.
0: I, I, I knew we were going to go this way. Um, Bravo. Thanks. Um, um, but Legion's a show that I can and objectively admit is a really well-done show, even though I don't particularly like it. Um, But we're not going to dwell on that. So, Matt, fill us in on the latest episode of Legion. All right. And I think X2 –
1: for me, X2 is still the best of the X movies. It's just one I've seen so
0: many times that I don't want to watch it anymore. I understand. I'm I'm just – I I just (sighs) – you know the Brian Singer thing is wearing off. I just, you know, I, I hate to see you not like a movie that you used to really like because the Brian Singer Brian Singer formula is wearing. It's thin. not just
1: him. It, it's but a you lot also of like First
0: Class way more than me. I, I think yeah. First Class is really flawed personally and super pulpy. I know it's supposed to be pulpy because it's the '60s, but the Emma Frost, ke- uh, um, uh, what's his name? Um, fuck, you know, um. I- mean it no 19-year-old? no kevin uh uh footloose kevin bacon kevin bacon emma frost stuff yeah is so sucks. horrible yeah
1: and emma frost i mean there's a reason her character bit the d- dust in, in days of future jones. past yeah january jones that's the actress's name she's whatever i i for me you those, like the fun stuff in the middle where they're training up right i like the training stuff yeah. and also The young X movies have very much been about Mystique, Magneto, and Xavier. And I would probably agree with you that Xavier is at his best in Days of Future Past. But without having seen Apocalypse, I liked what they did with Mystique and Magneto far and away the most in first class. I thought Days of Future Past, what Mystique does barely makes sense. And Magneto has no... That's barely a role. He's barely in. Young Magneto Fastbender barely is in Days of Future Past. He really just sort of shows up yeah. and leaves. He has no arc. Yeah. And then, as I understand it, they tried to force some kind of arc in Apocalypse with him, and it fell flat. So, for uh, me, you never saw Apocalypse. I couldn't do it. It was two uh, weeks. It was like a month it. after. Don't do it. If you were feeling yeah. this
0: way about Brian Senior. I'm seeing that, Logan yeah.
1: tonight, so I'm yeah. not done with oh, the act. Oh, yes. But,
0: okay. Okay. All right. Let's get I back just, to Legion. Um, I'm just excited you're seeing Logan. So uh, <laughs> why don't you just give us a, a real quick synopsis of, of this week in, uh, in Legion.
1: This week on Legion, we get some answers. It's not <laughs> all the answers, but some stuff is starting to resolve itself. We finally get some idea of what the devil with the yellow eyes is. We get some clarification on what exactly Lenny is and whether or not Lenny was ever a dude or not or what David is seeing. We see David use his powers. We see some very good acting from Dan Stevens as he plays both himself and
0: who Who's soon, body. by the way, about to be a huge superstar because right. he's the beast in Beauty and the Beast. Go ahead. He is the beast in Beauty and the Beast. And we get to see... So to rescue
1: Amy, he basically allows the devil personality to take, which we're going to get into spoilers. It's revealed maybe some kind of transplanted consciousness from some other mutant that like infected him when he was a kid, almost like the hive parasites in Mm -hmm. um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We don't know who the mutant is. Maybe it's Xavier or something related to Xavier. Maybe it's somebody else. Somebody suggested it was some demon called Shadow King from Marvel Comics. I don't know who that is. I hope it's a name people recognize, but whatever. Um, it takes over his body when he goes to directive what 3? The directive to save his sister. Um, and so we see him like winking and dancing as he's turning these people into ash and dismembering them. It's frightening as hell, and it's also some pretty good character range because he plays both himself terrified and himself supremely confident. Um, So it's really some of the best acting that I think Dan Stevens has done on the show because we see so many different sides of him. You know, it was confusing a little bit at times. There is still this overlying question of what is reality and what isn't. But the show also, the third act is gets back to the really good visceral terror of two episodes ago that again if you don't like being scared i don't think you want to watch this but i really enjoyed it um Mm -hmm. basically what happens is he interrogates amy after he rescues her and finds out he was adopted so we were right that that parent that he sees reading in the book not his birth father you know, because we figure his birth father is Charles Xavier, uh, but Ugh. then when the but when the other mutants come to rescue him, mm-hmm. he basically he makes it so that nobody can talk to anybody else. Like he makes the house go completely silent, so there's no noise except when he sca- captures Sid and starts terrorizing her. And so to have no noise, and he's and it's it's lenny it's Aubrey plaza's character uh is the only one who can talk it is really frightening um and then we see her basically licking david's face i mean and sort of making out with him but david is on the floor paralyzed with fear and sort of his like eyeballs are rolled into his head and he's shaking like he can't move and she is sucking on him basically in a way that suggests yeah she's some kind of parasite it's quite quite frightening um and then it ends with them all suddenly back in clockworks the mental institution which i'm pretty sure is going to be revealed as some kind of fantasy created by the uh the par- the devil with the yellow eyes to terrorize them some more um but you know, really good episode much a much more clear episode than the last one which was so bizarre i would call it the worst of the first five or six however many we've had mm. um so i i really like this last week's episode
0: cool <laughs> um did you know rachel keller's 25 that's crazy and that that looks about right for yeah. for, for her but she's 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 a more refined actress considering how few roles she's had and she just graduated from college a couple years ago she's very refined for it um also um i did not know that dan stevens was english i should have known that and he's got also 34 he's got a great american accent um cool man um all right let's run through a few more here uh supergirl i liked as always uh, my main comment with Supergirl that you confirmed is that they are kind of going for a little bit of, of a grittier film style, which I didn't see coming. It's hard to describe, but there was something about those opening scene opening scenes where I it's I could tell that they were stepping up their game with the camera. Um I don't know if mm-hmm. you have any insights into that, and you can talk about whatever you want about the this episode. Oh, and some great Dune talk about the Ben A uh was oh, yeah. <laughs> was was worth it. Um I like the alien chick. Her makeup yeah. is a little Next generation generationy, yeah, um, it's pretty but, generic alien, but it it, but gets it just the doesn't job even done. look that good. They should put some more texture on it, but whatever. She's cool. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I could watch her talk about the Benny Gesserit all day. Another sign, you know, that this show is on is clearly taking kind of a side in all of, in this culture war that it, it's trying to weigh in on yep. is they have of all the people she is talking about, the characters in Dune she likes the most are the badass. The, you know witch coven basically hell yeah uh, um that's who i'd want to and be. they are i mean the the, yeah. the, the benny Jesuit are were a really one of the cooler things in the entire dune mythology and herbert created a lot of cool ideas um but i think they are cooler certainly than the benny tlalax or the 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 spice Ex- creatures that navigate hyperspace travel I, I really think they are some of the most one of the most interesting
0: concepts he came up with oh yeah well, and the thing is, the, just establishing the, with exposition in the first book, it's so clear the Bene Gesserit have been running the show from behind the scenes for millennia. Yeah, and one of the great things about the God Emperor of Dune is they they are constantly plotting against Leto, the giant sandworm, and constantly failing because he can he's totally prescient, and so he knows what they're going to do, and they keep finding ways. But you're going, oh, if he doesn't like them, why doesn't he just exterminate them? And you realize that he does actually want them. He just needs to give them 3,500 years of, of education about you know, how to evolve as an organization, essentially. I mean, his mother right. was a Bene Gesserit and so forth. Um, and I, that, that seems like something that uh, tons of sci-fi and fantasy people would have stolen by now. And no one's done it successfully that I'm aware of. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, women um, with like witchy superpowers, we see, but in that level of behind the scenes, and it's never it never plays to female stereotypes. You know, the women are always in control. They use the sexuality when they want, how they want. Um, mm-hmm. Anyways, I, I, it makes sense that a lot, that was who Lyra would identify with, right? As a super empowered uh, cosmic female. Go ahead. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, this episode, yeah in a
1: lot of ways it changed up its shooting style and it's show making style to something that reminded me a lot more of arrow or daredevil in a good way in that it was darker. It was faster. It was grittier. It was a much more kinetic shooting style, a lot more of moving camera work and action scenes that didn't feel like, like three camera sets. Um, and it was it was really good. I don't know that I want to see Supergirl go in this direction for the rest of the series or even sure. the season, but for one episode, it made its point that this was going to be a, a different kind of episode, and it was. This was a hard, really brutal episode that was very much about immigration. It was about the Cadmus terrorists are kidnapping aliens who legally, I think, have the right to be there And shoving them on a ship, it's going to send to a planet Mm -hmm. that, and, you know, Jeremiah Danvers thinks they're going to go home from there. The planet, I don't think, was named accidentally. The planet is called Tacron Galtos, which in the comics is a prison planet. And I think they picked that planet name because if you're a comics fan, you're supposed to read that and think this is not even going to be as magnanimous as he thinks that mm-hmm. they aren't even saving them to send them home to a world's torn up by genocide and disease and famine, which is what Alex says. She, they're sending them to a political prisoner jail, basically that they they're sending them to the galaxy's Gitmo. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really harsh episode that has people with machine guns, taking little girls captive um, and I, I really thought it, at, while still making a very much pro journalism statement in that Kara goes behind Cars back and publishes a story that she hasn't, you know, that she knows is true because she's Supergirl, but he fires her because she didn't do good due diligence as a journalist to confirm this in his mind. Um, so I, I really thought this was. A top notch episode in execution.
0: I almost am glad um, that Supergirl's on CW, especially now. The same way I'm glad that NBC passed on Battlestar and ended up on Sci-Fi because they can just get away with so much more than than the main network yeah. stations. Um, and they've clearly made it tro- uh, you know the stupid arrow gun episode uh, uh, side by the way I, <laughs> the,
1: did you there, watch that
0: episode no but i've been there were people trolling uh supergirl for being too political and they were like you know like i was annoyed at the arrow gun episode but this is really too much stop at cw that kind of stuff and i was just like eh, heh, heh, heh.
1: <laughs> i'm pretty sure supergirl makes it shows that way to piss people like that oh, yeah.
0: off yeah and if i'm a parent you know i'm I'm thrilled i mean you don't even have to be a liberal i mean just not a conservative parent a normal parent There's, your girl's idol to be super, super girl i don't know who would be better yeah i mean yeah. she's pretty
1: kick-ass well ideally you want your girl's hero to be somebody who's
0: real yeah. but um i did love the part where <laughs> she said um as uh as Kara convinced her editor to get an exclusive with Supergirl and Supergirl pops in immediately and then she pops back in right away after that yeah, you know I mean that's, that's well an done. easy gag but you know it was the way that she changes personas is, is really convincing I don't know what it is about the glasses they do and they change her hair and they change her glasses and and that that just changes the whole thing you know um very appealing is Melissa Benoist Benoist excuse me um, cool, man. Um, so any other, uh, CW stuff? Oh, let's, you know what? Let's do web talk real quick and then we'll wrap on a couple sure. of shows. So I had this idea, um, cause I'm watching a lot of stuff on, on YouTube and just the web in general, which was not, it used to be my MO. Right. Um, actually this is really more a, an extension of, um, this is more an extension of podcasts. Um, and, in fact, I listen to a lot of these like podcasts because a lot of the time it's just people talking about various things. Now, mm-hmm. you know, this started about six months ago or eight months ago when I started watching Will Wheaton's Tabletop online and realizing how fun web shows can be. Now, his is completely... Um, the opposite of most web series you know like the guild where each episode's like five or ten minutes you know these like or uh, con man with alan tudyk there's these Mm -hmm. micro episodes tabletop uh goes 30 40 minutes and when they release extended versions of some of the better uh game experiences uh it can go up to two and a half hours and it was a two and a half hour version of, of a, of a D and D themed game called Lords of Waterdeep where Felicia Day was just screwing him over, over and over again. And he was just <laughs> shouting and throwing things and giving her the finger. And where I real, so I, I, that kind of hooked me to the show. Um, and then I had forgotten and rewatched the guild that they were like, You know, he was like a weird seducer of her and the guild, uh, uh, you know, um, they made out and stuff. But, anyways, point being that that got me into the idea that web shows could be cool along with the guild, which I had seen and sort of forgot about and rewatched. And so I'm really into board gaming because I watch a lot of board gaming videos, reviews, and, Mm -hmm. you know, people playing. There's a lot of hilarious personalities out there of all different ages and genders and ethnicities that are into this hobby. And it's very entertaining. Um, I do pay the $5 a month um for projectalpha.com which is where you get geek and sundry and um nerdist videos okay. most of them i'm not a big fan of um they, you know some of them are really short like they have this guy that looks like chris hemsworth that that uh does short science videos like the most recent one i tried to send it to you but i was like oh matt's not gonna be able to sign in he, he does a seven minute video about whether wolverine's claws could pierce superman Okay, and cool. uh, the conclusion he came to was based purely on science. If Wolverine's claws are as sharp as you know the sharpest obsidian, which is like three nanometers, um, right? He would be able to pierce Superman because at that point you're actually going between molecules and particles, and so you know what I mean so he'd be any yeah, yeah. any defenses anyways point being they have weird shit like that and then they also have critical role where they have all these voice actors that you would recognize from video games uh, do d d you know the release once or twice a month and it's like three four five hour sessions I only watched some small parts here or there very entertaining stuff so I pay the five dollars a month that's where tabletop is now although Will Wheaton basically threatened to not do it unless they made it available on YouTube as well so a, mm-hmm. a few weeks after they, him. uh yeah so a few weeks after and i think he's leaving after the season to do a solo thing because he hates corporations um who tell him what to do um and uh, oh by the way great will wheaton story so you know how wesley crusher leaves after season four uh yeah he goes off with uh the doctor who guy or yeah so he says they asked him to. to, to he was renegotiating either for that season or maybe one more and they said they're like we can't offer you a raise but we'll promote you to lieutenant <laughs> like that was like a serious negotiation tactic and he he claims that's what happened he says that's when he basically told them to go fuck off yeah um and and you know he he ended up becoming a um uh working on modern video editing software at this this really cutting edge thing in the 90s and he was out of of acting for really a long time i mean it's only in recent years on big bang theory and in the guild and stuff that he's been acting but um felicia day asked him to do the tabletop show because they are good buddies from way back and he knew, knew how great of a host he would be and how much he loves these games and it's created a revolution in board gaming industries i mean when they do a game it gets a million hits right away and everyone sells out of that game um online and at stores and stuff like that so point being there's some really quality content online right like i hate celebrity poker for example but i realize that tabletop is basically the tabletop version of celebrity poker where it's just more fun because the games are more fun and it's less serious and people are cursing at each other and having a good time right right so uh, that's like my reality tv but that's something i could never find on tv so let me ask you is there are there any web series or web personalities that you that you follow at all that you like to check out even even occasionally In
1: terms of longer shows, there's not a ton. Uh, The two that I do like, one, um, when I discovered this was a thing, I really wished I had come up with this idea. So there's (laughs) a series on YouTube called First We Feast where basically the premise is um, this guy interviews fairly well-known people, and as the interview progresses, they eat increasingly hot hot wings. (laughs) <laughs> and they the host has to yes. do it, and yes. the <laughs> I sent you one on T.J. Miller oh yeah, from I know. Deadpool. I've seen it a few times. That's yeah. um, great. And they're really, really funny because at every one of them, when the guy, um, what am I trying to say? When at, at every episode, there's the moment where the host and the guest it's too hot for them, and so they just then start complaining, and they're sweating, and they're freaking out. Um, because I guess when you eat really hot stuff you start to go crazy. Right. Um so they're really funny and bizarre. Uh and they're only ever about eighteen minutes or so. Uh so I really enjoy those. Um Epic Rap Battles of History is like one of my favorite things ever. That's mm-hmm. a yeah, long running YouTube thing that mm-hmm. I will admit I've memorized I know the lyrics to many of those. Um you know, I think YouTube lends itself very well to commentary on other media so i like wisecrack which does thug notes which is like cliff notes but the guy pretend who does the writing for it is like what up literary ballers today we going crazy with at the mountains of madness by h.p lovecraft um and he makes some pretty smart points um they did something recently on the philosophy of attack on titan and the way that it utilizes almost nazi-ish uh or Aryan political philosophy which makes
0: sense because that shows disturbing yeah
1: it is, but it's pretty. It's a pretty smart analysis, and they're not validating the political point, the the Nazi philosophy. They're just saying, look at all the ways that this show is trying to deal with those ideas. Right. Um, so I really like them. I like Red Letter Media a lot. Uh, the Plinkett reviews are really, really hilarious. Um. So yeah, you know the web stuff offers more variety than you could ever possibly get with mainstream or streaming services like Netflix. Um, so if you can find the good stuff, there's a lot of it.
0: Yeah. And I'm just curious about how the financial model works. I mean, there's a reason why the Nerdist and Keek and Sundry moved to a subscription channel. They obviously weren't getting enough ad revenue on, on YouTube um right now comic-con has their own channel and that's you know con yep. man with with tudik and fillion is like their their flagship show and you got to pay five dollars a month for that and i stopped paying for it just because i like the show but i can't be paying five dollars for all these things and they knew i right. was gonna keep project alpha um but so that's in, you know because like the, the biggest tabletop videos which is why wheaton had uh leverage a million to two million views so right No one else really has that. (laughs) So they had to kind of give him a little of what he wanted. Um, And he still kind of threw a hissy fit about it because that's just who he is. Um, But uh, point being, you know, it it is interesting. You know, it's like it used to be so on the fringes and, and now not just nerd culture, but web video culture in general is so mainstream um, to the point where it's maybe becoming—I again, I'm just being towards the nerds here. It's almost becoming too mainstream in some ways. You know, it is starting these subscription services. It focuses on celebrities maybe too much. You know, which is why I also subscribe to a lot of uh, gaming and other nerd channels that you know aren't just celebrities because sometimes you just want like the common person. And some of those videos do really well, like hundreds of thousands of hits. Yeah. Um. There, I, I will say. I mean we don't have to talk about this now there are a lot of young cute white girls who do these like four-hour vlogs where they just talk at the listeners and do live chats that get like hundreds of thousands of views is an interesting phenomenon it's not just young white cute chicks but there's a lot of them um and you know it, it, it it's like do you think that the same way um well you know how when when blogging started becoming really big a few years ago everyone lamented the end of journalism but yeah. now like some blogs have become like major media forces and some major media forces have just become farces and so I'm not sure that necessarily holds up. Now, someone who works for a newspaper, I'm sure you still believe in the power of, of the traditional media, and I'm with you on that. I still read the New York Times and stuff like that. Um, do you think something similar is happening on the web, where the web is sort of creating some content that maybe uh, on the outside might be considered trashy or lowbrow or whatever, but is, is offering something that you can't uh, get elsewhere? Or I even mean, has that potential? Of course. I mean
1: that's I mean I the reason I don't mean Netflix. I don't
0: mean Netflix. I'm talking about. No, no, no. But the reason I
1: feel like any kind of alternate form of media exists is because it offers something, whether I mean whether it's a trashy thing or it's a valuable I mean that's all semantics and that's in the eye of the beholder, so I don't know. But you know, I, I said last week when we were talking about Westworld that I felt like the premium channels part of the appeal has always been that the programming could be racier, that it could be mm-hmm. it could have it could be more violent, it could have cursing, it could have boobs, it could have, you know, graphic sex or mm-hmm. even sexual violence, much as I don't really want to see that in my television mm-hmm. all that much. You know, but that was always some of the appeal of those channels is they could give you that if you wanted it, and the mainstream channels couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I think there's very much a sense that YouTube, because it doesn't seem to have the same controls. And you don't, it's definitely doesn't seem to be bound up by the backwards bullshit of the FCC. Can offer other kinds of stuff, including just pure variety. Um, You know, you're Mm -hmm. never going to see a mainstream channel do a TV show Mm -hmm. about board games. Or if you do, it's probably not going to be very good and it's not going to last very long. Yeah. But what you're talking about, tabletop, is now what? About five seasons now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been going on for a while.
0: Yep. Yeah. But as I mentioned, I prefer tabletop on the low budget to the overproduced thing they've got going on now. Not that it's not good. It just feels less natural and real. Um, and sure, organic. and I
1: think that is something else that YouTube offers content creators is that you can create something – much cheaper
0: than you could create it for uh, traditional media yeah I mean the 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 most watched board game channel by far other than tabletop and it's not even a close second they just they're about to hit a hundred million hits since 2008 when they launched it's right. called the dice tower and it's literally just like three chubby dudes from Florida talking about <laughs> games but they're really f- weird and funny and different and they're not the smartest guys but they're aware that they're not the smartest guys and so they play right. on that but they' are Really good gamers and, and know how to talk about games, mm-hmm. and they get like a hundred to you know hundreds of thousands of hits on a lot of their videos, and they specifically haven't. Changed their production style much in the last five to seven years on purpose because it feels so just natural like you're just hanging out with them in their games room you know I mean they'll put more fancy graphics here or there but when it comes to just the three of them talking they're just sitting at the table talking about games right. and and they they certainly have the money to do it because they do kickstarters and raise tons of money for the channel um, and I did wanted to mention that things like Kickstarter Indiegogo um, Patreon and so forth has yeah. really been so so clutch in sustaining these channels because um like for example Iraq the guy who does the metal covers bizzlecast listeners who you hear uh, at the beginning of this podcast um and uh check out our, uh, um, the uh the podcast feed uh, for his patreon website but he gets like 1500 dollars per video or something Mm -hmm. Um, That he does And that seems like a lot of money But for the time it takes to compose it And practice it and shoot it a whole bunch of times And he's only doing like one a month Basically, you know Um, And promote it Is actually like a pretty fair thing And sometimes he only gets half that And sometimes he gets the whole thing But that's enough for him to to be sustained So that's really helped with uh, with this as well Um, And yeah, it, it is a direct to the people thing Is what I was trying to get to with the Dice Tower You know, if you're raising money from the people And you're putting it on YouTube then you are beholden to no one except for the people that are supporting you. And so, for example, and, and then we can move on like uh, for the season three uh, Kickstarter campaign for Tabletop, which raised like a million and a half dollars, one of the things Will Wheaton promised was that yeah, yeah. he would have Aisha Tyler and a couple other people on and they would play uh, c- c- um, Cards Against Humanity. Uh, which is like the most offensive game ever, but it's so funny. And so, you know, so he was like, here it is, people. Put your kids to bed. You asked for it, you know, NSFW. Um, And uh, so I I just, I love, it's very freeing. And I don't even mind the short ads before the videos because I know I'm getting a, a relatively authentic experience, I guess is my my thought and so it'll be interesting to see where it goes um all right buddy so uh i've only got about 10 minutes here uh so what what would you like to close on i'll leave it up to you
1: i think uh i mean we've gotten to a lot of what i wanted to talk about but i i think i did want to mention flash real briefly go this i thought was a really strong episode of flash i the flash Every season seems to have a couple of scenes where there is the bad guy, and he goes on this sort of malevolent monologue about why he hates the good guys. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, the Flash is really good at executing those kinds of scenes. And this past episode was the malevolent Savitar monologue, and it was pretty cool. And then when he finally – earlier in the season, they seemed to trap him in the Speed Force – And this time he basically tricks Wally West, who really, my enjoyment of that guy's character kind of went downhill quite a bit in the
0: last three weeks. I never liked him, Um, but whatever. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, he really kind of became an idiot. But I still don't think he's dead, but whatever. He tricks Wally West into throwing the thing he needs to get out of the Speed Force into the Speed Force. So then he escapes, and he is like crawling out of this Speed Force tunnel and looks and behaves almost like... uh, General Grievous from the third, from um, mm-hmm. Revenge of the Sith, who I actually liked, yes. I didn't know that he was good, but he seemed to Man have was
0: great. some yeah.
1: personality and was like mildly yeah. entertaining to watch, which made him better than anything else in any of the prequels.
0: And, so, and just really quickly, his character presaged a very important thing that comes up in Star Wars Rebels, which is that there are a lot of bad guys who can use lightsabers and maybe even a little bit of the force without being Jedi. And he was just cool looking and, and the wheezing robot was an interesting effect. Go ahead.
1: Right, I'm still not sure if he actually was alive or was just an artificial personality because he did seem to ultimately still be serving the emperor, but oh, whatever. Philosophy
0: in the prequels is crazy.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> I mean, it's like I, I accuse the Matrix of being lazy philosophy. Whatever philosophy is in the prequels, that makes the matrix philosophy look like yeah. fucking socrates um, you,
0: you can you can accuse the matrix of being bad philosophy obscure philosophy incoherent philosophy stupid self-congratulatory <laughs> masturbatory but lazy i just don't like that word because they did spend tons of time on the philosophy even if you think it's stupid but anyways go ahead
1: whatever yeah. um so he looks really cool and when he's clawing his way out of the speed force it, it's neat, it's creepy looking, it doesn't look as Transformer-y as he usually does.
0: Mm-hmm. It's still,
1: I think, an entirely CGI character, which I'm not nuts about, but whatever. And I think one thing that worked about this episode is it's the first one in a long time that doesn't introduce any new elements. It mm-hmm. doesn't, there's no Gorilla City, there's no Solivar, the king of Gorilla City, there's no... Last week's episode, there is a split-second scene where Gypsy meets another speedster from another Earth called the Accelerated Man. He's basically from another Earth that I think either England never lost – it's like it takes place in the 1920s or the 1900s, and it's either in in England in the Victorian era or it's like England never lost the Revolutionary War and so everything in the world is English culture. But it's that flash. But he just shows up and then leaves. So that's another thing that they're just adding on to it. And for this one episode, there are no new characters and there are no new concepts. And it actually finally gives an episode the space to breathe to move the plot forward. And I think that worked very much in its favor.
0: Interesting. You brought up an interesting uh, – well, you brought up a point about IRS. Um, Yes. And one of the things that the Flash lost me with is it's just incoherent attempts at time travel based plots. Right. Um, But more so, as I mentioned, one of our early cross extremes was the we need to create fake tension. So there's going to be these ongoing story about Iris dying that we're going to a spend too much time talking about, but never make real moral or ethical or even practical sense but right. be just mention in passing constantly as like a pseudo-serialized aspect of the show, right? Am I wrong?
1: Yeah, pretty much, you know, and this, these false... Wait, pretty moral- much I'm wrong or
0: pretty much I'm no, right? You're, no, you're pretty much oh, right. Okay, I mean,
1: okay. and these, you know, you've accused this show and Arrow of having these sort of false moral dilemmas that are boring and not all that, and they just seem to create drama unnecessarily and they fall flat. Well, there's a doozy of one of those in this episode where Barry, because he – Barry proposes to Iris a couple of episodes prior and she accepts. And then when Wally flashes forward into the future, mm-hmm. he sees that Iris, when she's getting stabbed, has doesn't have a ring on her finger. And so then surmises that, that the only reason Barry proposed to her is because he thinks – Proposing to her will change the future and save her life. And then he confronts Barry and Iris about it. And, that, and Barry admits that's part of his reasoning. And Iris flips out at him. And to say nothing of how stupid it is to think that by proposing to somebody, that's like the only reason that would change anything. I, I don't know. The, the whole quandary fell completely flat for me and felt like such a dumb way to create an extra 30 minutes attention mm-hmm. um i really hope they abandon that that particular subplot moving forward because I, I think barry and iris are in love and i think he proposed to her because he loves her and just as easily might have proposed to her because he's afraid she's going to die and wants to spend the last few months of her life together with i i mean There's so many logical reasons why he would want to marry her. This this just felt so false.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I mean, the thing is, it, it makes no sense in terms of time travel to be so obsessed with the minutia because so many things could happen and if it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and if it's not if there's a chance for it not happening then you have to wait till it gets closer to the moment or else the butterfly effect makes it impossible to judge it and so there's no practical reason and really no narrative reason to have this iris is gonna die thing um but you know i mean this is the cw arrow does this too they're obsessed they claim to be trying to protect everyone but whenever it becomes personal they're willing to sacrifice the entire planet like like Mm -hmm. the flash does with trying to save his mom or whatever um and uh that that ends up falling flat for me flash continues to get good ratings from what i can tell people people seem to really like that show so maybe they shouldn't mess with it
1: yeah i mean i i i think this was a great episode and i hope that they have more of these where they don't just throw crap on top of of more crap like i they've cast the villain abracadabra which is this guy from the future whose magic is so whose science is so advanced it looks like magic and that's a long-standing flash villain and so that's cool but it's another rogue and i I, you know we're gonna get the musical episode which i think is more gonna just be a fun diversion in the same way that the four-part dominator thing was mostly a fun diversion so i'm looking forward to that but when they cast it used to be when they cast another, or announced another big villain was coming, I got really excited. Now I'm really starting to feel like this is falling apart at the seams. Mm-hmm. Um, and more episodes like this, where they don't introduce anything new and they just advance the characters they already have, mm-hmm. I think is a good way to get the show on track, or to at least keep it going for a while yet.
0: Yeah. you know, I just think the reason we like J.J., Uh, and supergirl and the reason i continue to think that those shows will go on longer than their male counterparts is because it's more novel for whatever reason cara danvers and jessica jones are just more compelling real people Mm -hmm. um and you know uh, men brooding going around saving the world and just brooding about it you know we've kind of had enough I mean, in movies and TV, right? I mean, Arrow's always brooding. You you think The Flash is, like, very emotional. I, I see him as kind of emotionless, per- personally. I think Grant Gustin is on the verge of crying in almost every That's scene he's true. in. That's true. That's um,
1: true. The fact that, that Arrow and, Emotionless
0: isn't the word. He is brooding, yeah, though. Yeah.
1: I mean, Jessica Jones is brooding as well, on top of some other
0: emotions. I know, but, but I, it's not male brooding. It's just Yeah, different, the dude. male
1: thing doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you. I, I don't mind... I. I want diversity, but that doesn't mean I want all male, which is never going to happen anyway, so it's not a real fear of mine. But if the character makes sense as a male character, I'm fine with that. I I think Jessica Jones has helped out by the fact that it really only has, I think, maybe eight total characters and only arguably three that really, really are critical, and then maybe two more on top of that that are pretty important like I the
0: i just think uh, look objectively i like supergirl and jessica jones better than a lot of these shows i mean yeah they happen to be women and yes i happen to like that they're women but they're still better i still think jj is clearly the best of the defenders that we've seen part of the reason i was excited for danny Randall was because he seemed to be kind of a troublemaker unlike daredevil and arrow and that that you know it doesn't um, seem so self-righteous about it but yeah I,
1: Which he still might turn out to be, but it sounds like it just wasn't executed very well. I also think Supergirl and Jessica Jones focus on the relationship dynamics first and then the actions and the comic book source material second. Like Mm -hmm. the, you know, when... I keep going back to this episode. The Alex coming out episode, the Alex scenes are the best scenes. The fight with the parasite is fine, Mm -hmm. but it's just the thing Supergirl does... In between these really heartfelt interactions between the characters, and Jessica Jones is mostly about character interaction, even when she's interacting with the villain she is ultimately going to have to fight. Even though she doesn't exactly fight him in the way that Daredevil fights Fisk or Luke Cage fights uh, Perhead or Daredevil or Arrow fights, you know Malcolm Merlin or any right. of the big bads, yeah. and. The Flash, it seems to sometimes be sacrificing character dynamics so that it can keep delving deeper
0: into this lore. Yep. And
1: that's the wrong direction to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the brooding superhero, it's a, it's a staple. It's a mainstay. You're going to see tonight the ultimate brooding superhero. But <laughs> he he's so earned it, you know, as a character and as an actor that you just never want it to stop because, you know, this is the last movie. Um, but Wolverine, obviously, is the, you know, is, is beyond brooding. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons people like the Avengers is because Tony Stark isn't that kind of superhero. And Thor certainly is not that kind. I mean, Thor is way more funny in the movies than in the comic books. I think Hemsworth, right. in some ways, we'll see how Ragnarok is. Uh I think Hemsworth has had the highest level of difficulty in some ways with Thor who's such a bizarre character but to make him so funny and lovable is great Cap is brooding but he's do yeah, yeah. but because again cause Chris Evans subtle performance in the Captain America version they've done just works great Um Arrow it works better for me than Daredevil in some of the other shows but or or it did in the past um and once now he's trying to like open up and be more honest with his new kitties that are making him feel guilty all the time i actually like him less i'm like no i like old brooding oliver that didn't <laughs> answer to anybody you know and he was a true vigilante um so okay man well i'm it's interesting that you're predicting doom for Flash. I, I didn't see that I'm coming. not predicting doom but i'm starting to see it fraying and i i am mm-hmm. concerned
1: about that but mm-hmm. i think It's more than still salvageable. We know it's coming back next year, so they're going to go in one of two directions, and I know you got to go, so I'll make this point quickly. Either (laughs) it's going to fall apart, or they're going to do Crisis on Infinite Earths, and they're just going to go totally freaking over the top with the scale of it. Uh And I think even if it's a train wreck... What they're going to have to commit to to make Crisis on Infinite Earths happen, even a stripped-down version of it, mm-hmm. is going to be so over-the-top and ridiculous. I think it's still going to be pretty fun to watch. You know, sure. It's going to be the, da- the Dominator four-parter on, like, meth.
0: <laughs> that was cool. And by the way, um, please do let me know when the musical episode is... Is, or two episodes. I mean, the Supergirl part, obviously, I've already taped, but or, or you know, DVR. I don't know if I'm still DVRing Flash. Okay, um, hey, you have to check back on that, uh, that. All right, Matt. So we had um, Americans debut this week. We will keep track of that. Uh, what else is coming out next week or two? Badlands.
1: Yeah, we have Iron Fist and Into the Badlands coming out. This I might watch weekend.
0: Badlands to be honest with you. That seems to be the show that might keep my attention long enough to really get into. Um, I, I, I mean, it's
1: really, it's got a really cool, brightly colored visual aesthetic, and the martial arts are pretty cool. And it does star a uh, an actor of Asian heritage as sure. opposed to a white person, which. I mean, we've talked a lot about how we still don't have an uh, an Asian superhero, and Daniel Wu is really good, and he is, uh, you know, kind of trend-setting in that respect. Um, you know, he's American, uh, but he lives in Hong Kong, you know, he is of whatever. Anyway, he's been described as the next Donnie Yen in some interviews, so that's cool. Um, anyway... uh, His father emigrated to the U.S. after the communist uh, revolution in 1949. I'm taking that uh, directly from Wikipedia. But yeah, so he's a really – he's not a great actor in his delivery, but the action scenes in this show are really cool. Um, Very much that sort of heightened visual style of something you might get out of – House of Flying Daggers, or uh, Hero. Mm -hmm. Hero, right? That Jet Li movie um, that's Mm -hmm. like Rashomon, but for the modern. Um, So, really, really cool, really interesting mix of visual aesthetic and action sequences. So, you know, it's worth checking out. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I dig it. Well, thank you listeners for listening to Crossing Streams Podcast. We will be back next week. Matt, thank you as always, and we are out.